Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We're so glad you're here. So this year, we are spending the entire year exploring the life and teachings of Jesus. This message is from our September 9th service where we talk about the forgotten Jesus. There's one quick note that I want to make before the message begins. So later in the sermon, I talk about how slaves didn't abandon the religion of their slaveholders. What I want to clarify is something that I didn't clarify in the message, and that's that Christianity didn't originate from the slaveholders. We in North America too often think of the gospel as going out from here, but we always need to remember that the gospel first came to us. Philip Jenkins, in an important book called The Next Christendom, writes, Founded in the Near East, Christianity for its first thousand years was stronger in Asia and North Africa than in Europe. And only after about 1400 did Europe and Europeanize North America decisively become the Christian heartland. So the point that I'm making in the message is simply that even though Jesus was distorted by white slaveholders, somehow Jesus was not abandoned by many who were slaves. Instead, the slaves had a better grasp on who Jesus was and therefore provided a prophetic rebuke to those in power. Anyway, we'll get there soon enough. Here is the message on the forgotten Jesus. And I want to talk about the forgotten Jesus. So I started out in pastoral ministry in 1999, which means uh, that I'm old. And uh, But this was actually a really exciting time, at least in my context, to be a pastor. So I was a kid who grew up in the maritime provinces, uh, which often feels like an afterthought to the rest of Canada. And then I, I spent most of my days, ministry days in the U.S., and nobody knows who we are at all. But like out here, um, we lived in Ontario, and people talk about out east. Here, out east means Ontario, and it's like there's a whole like other basically half country beyond Ontario where some of us grew up. But anyway, we're an afterthought. And that's how we saw ourselves. And, and we didn't have any, you know, too many large churches um, out there. And so then I attended a Bible school of less than a thousand people, like far less than a thousand people in Peterborough, Ontario, um, metropolitan area. Uh, all of this to say that I didn't come from the big church world, right? And so it was an amazing thing for me as, just, uh, as a young person to get hired right out of Bible college um, and to become the worship pastor at this large church that had like 2,500, 3,000 people coming on Sundays. And they had this um, gargantuan sanctuary that set like 5,000 people. And so suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, it's, I, am, I, I, am I supposed to be this nervous, you know, sitting in front of people? But um, we didn't often have that many on Sundays, but it was the type of time period in the church where we would host um, events or we would host speakers and we would easily have that many people come. Um, I remember one time T.D. Jakes came to our church. And literally people lined up um, on the streets 
for like a while to get to our church. To come, like there was such excitement to come to church that people were lined up on the streets. I think we had like 10,000 people somehow crammed into the building that night. But during this era, things are kind of like this, that um, you could pack out stadiums with people, uh, you know, just coming to worship or coming to hear a particular speaker or something. And it wasn't hard to imagine, at least in some context, that like the church could explode and the church would, would, would grow at any point because things were booming, things were growing. And I think back on these days with incredible fondness, and, and God did many great things uh, in my life during those times. So I actually think it's, um, I got away with my soul intact by working at a, at a big church. Uh, it, that's the grace of God, I'll say that. But anyway, uh, no young person should be thrust into that. Uh, but God did a lot in, in my life during that time. And, and we just went to church, I think, just there's this general expectation um, from people that God was going to meet with you in a significant way. And, and for many of us, going to church was actually like this electrifying event. Um, but somehow through the years, there was this growing sense, generally speaking, that we're starting to lose something. Our, our music was getting better, but the people in the church were singing less, or if at all. Um, and it seemed like we knew how to make things grow, but suddenly our churches felt more like, some of our churches at least, felt more like businesses than they did churches. Um, and the church began to have kind of power and influence, but it, it didn't feel a lot of places at least like cross-shaped power. It was more like political power or maybe like celebrity power. And it's far too simplistic, I guess, to say that um, suddenly everything just turned bad because this isn't true. Uh, there were a lot of people who were doing really good things and there might be people who say, well, I had a really different experience than that back then. Um, there were a lot of people doing good and there were a number of prophetic voices who were speaking up and saying like, Hello, we are heading in a really, really bad direction here. And I think we need to shift and change some things in the church. Um, but still, for a number of reasons, things in the church culture and in the church world begin to unravel. And this is complete conjecture on, on my part. But I think some of us knew that the way that we were doing church and the things that were happening in church culture were not sustainable for the long haul. Um, but I think it might've taken a generation, maybe even two generations to like completely unravel. And then the pandemic came and it feels like what might've unraveled uh, in a large sense in kind of the evangelical world in a generation or two happened like within a couple of years. And I don't know, and none of us know what's gonna happen here in the years to come. But the truth is right now, people are not lining up on the streets to get into our church buildings, right? Um, instead, people are reading books and they're listening to podcasts about how the churches that shape much of evangelical thinking and evangelical thought have fallen apart and how influential leaders during this period have fallen and have become an embarrassment. And we're doing this, of course, while we're watching uh, the news here in Canada, for example, about the discovery of the bones of indigenous children found at residential schools that were run by Christians. And so I've watched in my lifetime, and I know 43 might seem old to you, 
But it's not that old, y'all. So I've watched in my lifetime uh, the church go from a place of, of excitement for many of us to a place of embarrassment. Uh, now, I'm, again, the, the, this is an oversimplification. I'm not saying that there weren't people who weren't embarrassed 20 years ago. There were. Uh, and I'm also saying that there aren't people who aren't excited today. There are people who are excited today about the church. But there has been a noticeable and a dramatic shift that has taken place. And the truth is that we live in a time that it's not an easy time, particularly at a place like the university, to say, I'm a Christian. Uh, and Christianity, for many people, has become synonymous with bigotry, with judgmentalism, and, and even with colonialism. I recently had a parent say to me, you know, uh, my daughter loves God, but my daughter is embarrassed to identify as a Christian at the university. Like, how do, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And, and the truth is, I don't think she's alone. And I guess part of this talk tonight is an attempt to maybe address some of that a little bit. So there's a story in the Bible that I find absolutely fascinating, but I don't think it gets uh, talked about much beyond kids' church. And it's in Luke 2, and the story was read earlier. Uh, and, and we find in verse 11 that Jesus was with his parents, and they were in Jerusalem. So kind of this major hub uh, for the festival of the Passover. And in verse 43, or sorry, I said verse 11. Jesus was 11. He's 11 years old, so he's just a boy. I have a son who's 11. And, and so they're there. And we read this in verse 43 of Luke 2. After the festival was over... While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, hmm. thinking he was in their company. They traveled on for a day. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So we know like next to nothing about Jesus' childhood, right? And, and so I think we like to tell this story to children because Jesus was a child and maybe like the kids can identify with child Jesus. But I don't think the point of the text uh, is for us to identify with Jesus. I think the point of the text is that we're supposed to identify with Mary and Joseph. Um, I like what, what a theologian Lauren Winter says. She says, I have great sympathy for Mary and Joseph. I lose Jesus all the time. And so diagnosing our problems is deeply complex and in some ways is just an impossible task. But I do think that when the church gets herself into trouble and the church has gotten herself into trouble, we just are, we're in trouble, that we, like Mary and Joseph, can hit this moment of realization that we've somehow been journeying without Jesus, without knowing it. And I think there are, there are a number of ways that we can lose Jesus. I, I think one of, the, one of the ways is quite simply Jesus goes missing from, um, from our church kind of conversation altogether. So I remember hearing people, they would come and like, man, there'd be such excitement around these people. Everybody's taking notes. I was always shocked by this. But, you know, they would give this whole plan and all these strategies and this new vision and all these kinds of things. And inevitably... One of my friends who with kind of discerning ears would like lean over to me as everybody's getting excited about the new vision that we have, the church and the new things we're going to do. And this person leaned over and said, like, you know, the problem with this, right? Like what? And he's like, like, we don't need God in it at all. We can do the whole thing 
without God, the whole plan. You could literally pull the whole thing off without involving God whatsoever. So Jesus kind of went missing from our conversation. That's one of the ways I think that we can lose Jesus. Uh, But of course, because we're in church work, you can't get away with not talking about Jesus for too long. And so Jesus inevitably makes his way back into our, our conversation. And the problem is, though, that we don't necessarily want Jesus' opinion on our ideas. We just want Jesus' name attached to our ideas. And so when this happens, uh, this is what you call domesticating Jesus. We make Jesus into, you know, the American Jesus, or we make Jesus into the Canadian Jesus, and we leave the Jesus that we read about in Scripture, we leave him behind, and we just want Jesus as kind of our stamp of of approval. Uh, So Voltaire once said this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So we have been made to reflect the image of God to other people and to the rest of creation, but often we want God to reflect our image so that we can remake Jesus the way that we want Jesus to be. So there's this important figure um, in early Christianity in the second century by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, uh, he was this brilliant guy, and he lived in a time where all kinds of different strange ideas and beliefs were popping up here and popping up there. And so Irenaeus wanted to go and kind of sort them out. And one of the groups that he wanted to sort out and that he had a problem with were these people called the Valentinians. And the Valentinians were led by this guy named Valentinus. Now, Valentinus liked the Bible. He liked scripture. And he would use scripture, both the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible um, and the New Testament. But he would use them to like produce his own works. And the problem, though, was that while Valentinus believed that all scripture was an expression of truth, he believed that real truth was, quote, authentically perceived in in the heart. Real truth, so we could read the Bible, but the real truth was actually in the heart. So David Dawson says this, Valentinus relies on his own heart's visionary experience. There alone, there in the heart, is the true origin of the wisdom that others routinely attributed to authoritative texts. One does not need to go to derivative sources for truth originally lies in the very interior of one's being. So uh, this is in an interesting way, kind of an acute representation with differences, but of of our own time. Um, Real truth, actually, many people in our culture believe uh, exists within my heart. Um, And so we have this kind of what a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. And and real truth lies in the individual and what that individual feels. And this actually sounds really good. And and I think all of us sometimes are drawn to this, but it's problematic on a few levels. And and one of the reasons it's problematic is that even if inadvertently, it sets up a, a strange kind of hierarchy among us. And this is what happened with Valentinus, and it's what still happens today, is uh, the truth that exists in my heart. He says, well, I, I and the people uh, that are with me, we've experienced these kind of revelations from God. And the rest of you, you haven't quite got to our level yet. You're kind of down here, but we, we're way up here um, because we've really received revelation from God. And so there's this kind of hierarchical thing. Some of us who are like Pentecostals and Charismatics need to be very cautious on this kind of thing. 
But there's something else that happens even, even more damaging with what they would do with the Bible. And so here's how Irenaeus explained what was happening with how they read the Bible and what they did with scripture. Uh, he says this, they disregarded the order and the connection of the scriptures. So in other words, uh, we see this in scripture, this, and they're all kind of connected and forming this cohesive narrative of sorts. And as much uh, as in them lies, they disjoint the members of the truth. They transfer passages and rearrange them. Okay, so now we're getting into some interesting language. And making one thing out of another, they deceive many by badly composed fantasy of the Lord's words that they adapt. Now watch this. By way of illustration, the second century, suppose someone would take the beautiful image of a king, carefully made out of precious stone by skillful artists, and would rearrange the jewels and make the form of a dog or of a fox out of them. And that, a rather bad piece of work. So we live in a, in a very different time and we live with different problems. But I believe that much of what the church has done has been kind of a similar move. We've actually taken Jesus, the beautiful king, and we've turned Jesus into a fox or into a dog. And this happens every time that we try to shape and rearrange Jesus into our likeness and into our uh, image. And we rearrange and we kind of create an ugly Jesus. And so while we name Jesus when we teach and when we preach and even when we talk to each other, um, the Jesus that we talk about sometimes, or even the Jesus that some people are preaching, looks an awful lot more like a dog or a fox than Jesus Christ crucified. And I know that this isn't true of everyone, but I believe that the Jesus that many people are leaving and that many people are rejecting is not the beautiful Jesus that we see on a cross, but it is the Jesus that someone handed them who looks like a dog, who looks like a fox. The real Jesus is back at the temple, but we've been journeying on without him, carrying ugly images of, of him around in our pockets and in our speech. And so Jesus disappears from our speech and then he reappears in our speech, but um, only in the way we want him to reappear in our speech. And therefore, the Jesus some people talk about becomes a really gross misrepresentation of Jesus. And then finally, what we do is we then take that, that Jesus that we've put back into our own ideas, the one that we've rearranged, and we project that ugly image of Jesus out into the world. And we name Jesus and we use Jesus to do dreadful things to other people. And, you know, the Bible calls this taking God's name in vain. So many of us think that that simply means, you know, just using the name God as a cuss word. Well, it is that, but it's, it's a much deeper thing than that. It's to misuse the name of God. Uh, we recently saw some displays of this rather publicly. So Donald Trump, while um, a crowd during, you know, during Black Lives Matter, different things are happening. And, and they're spraying, like, as far as I know, because somebody's going to say, hey, look, it was not exactly the kind of gas you mentioned, whatever. They're spraying some kind of gas into the crowd and like rubber bullets. And Donald Trump uses the opportunity to stand in front of a church with a Bible for a photo op. 
right? And, and, and he does this. Um, he was using God. He was using God in order to try to gain political affirmation for God to back his opinions. Now, lest some of you say like, oh my gosh, this guy's a total like left-wing guy and I'm right-wing, so we're going to dismiss him. Look, okay, Joe Biden in the U.S. recently did a similar thing where he's talking about the war in Afghanistan and he quotes the book of Isaiah where Isaiah said, you know, here am I, Lord send me. And he made it about the American military's willingness to go to Afghanistan instead of the prophet's call to respond obediently to God. So there's this way that we can use God and use scripture to try to back us and our opinions and gain power. Uh, Brian Zahn says this, he says, here's the thing. Caesar, and when he says Caesar, he doesn't just mean the historical Caesar. He means any person that kind of rises up to that type of power, even in our time. He says Caesar is more than willing to employ the church as a chaplain. As long as the church will endorse with a bit of religious flourish the ways and means of the empire. Very happy for the church. You can have you know, freedom if you want, as long as you do the things that we want you to do. So the church can be a beautiful movement of goodness and grace, but the church can also be um, a movement of dread and terror. And I believe that a lot of this has to do with how we look at Jesus. You know, Christians have really do have a beautiful history, uh, but we also have a really dreadful history. And as Christians who are living in this time, I just would say it's important for us to look at, at both of those things. Uh, but I want to spend one more minute talking about the negative side of, of some of this, because I think it's important for us to stop trying to brush past some of this stuff. You know, the truth is that Christians actually use the Bible to endorse slavery, like in the U.S. Um, this is difficult to read, but the ab abolitionist Frederick Douglass, he talked about this, and he said this, I have seen him, my master, tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drip. And in justification of the bloody deed, he would quote this passage of scripture. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it shall be, and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. And so you have these people, they would use the Bible to endorse and promote all this, all these dreadful things. We could tell a similar story uh, about our beautiful indigenous sisters and brothers. They were deeply and grossly harmed, and many of them in Jesus' name. Not the crucified Jesus, mind you, but the fox Jesus who became a tool of the empire. And, and so I think that there are many, maybe many of you, who are at times embarrassed to identify as Christians. Uh, and these are the things that we're just mentioning that are being talked about or will be talked about in, in some of your classes. And, and here's what I want to say is, first of all, it's okay to be embarrassed, actually. Um, because there is nothing in that particular history that should make us, us proud. And, and for the record, hiding the history doesn't do us any good. The bones, as we are learning, eventually get dug up and, and hiding bad history um, becomes worse in the long run. And so part of being a Christian and part of the difficult task of being a Christian is facing the truth that we would rather not face about some of our, some of our history. Now, it's important to say here that um, this is not the only history of Christianity. 
we have some really, really astounding moments in history. And, and so what I was going to do is actually take just a, a few moments and go through that history and talk about some of these things um, and to walk us through some of the beauty of the church, you know, the Mother Teresa's and all, all these types of things. But instead, I, I think that if we take this moment and really um, look at some of the terrible things we and we dig a little bit deeper, we may find some other truth there that's important for us to dig into. One of the amazing things about Frederick Douglass, the man that I just mentioned who was uh, an abolitionist, is that he didn't leave the faith. Instead, he was an abolitionist in the name of Jesus. And one, to me, one of the shocking events of recent history is that the African-American people held on to the faith that was presented to them by their slave owners. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Why? And the answer, I believe, is, is the cross. There's an African-American scholar by the name of James Cone, and he wrote this important book called The, the Cross and the Lynching Tree. And in this book, he argues that the lynching tree where African-American people um, suffered in the U.S., he says it needs to be seen through the, through the lens of the cross. And the reason he says that is because the cross, historically, was a, a tool that was used by the Romans. It wasn't only Jesus that was crucified on the cross. Many, many people got crucified on the cross. And the Romans would crucify people when they dared to challenge their power. African-American people were lynched by white supremacists when they dared to confront their power at all. And so what happened is that the African-American community suddenly looked at the cross and they found deep solidarity with Jesus. Because they said, Jesus, Jesus knows what it is to suffer like we suffer. What kind of God would put up with this? Would let humanity give this kind of suffering to him? What kind of God? So they found solidarity in the cross of Jesus. But the other thing that they found uh, is that they also saw the salvation of the cross. They, they realized that on the cross, actually, Jesus overcame. So Jesus was not only the person who was in solidarity with them. Jesus uh, actually gave them great hope because by the cross of Jesus, they believed that uh, it transformed their very experience. And so there's this kind of shocking quote where it says, while the lynching tree symbolized white power and black death, the cross symbolized divine power and black life. God overcoming the power of sin and death. And so the church has a long way to go in terms of racial conciliation. Not all keep the faith. I have several very close African-American friends um, who have left the faith, but I have many others who are the, some of the greatest examples of faith that I, that I know. And what kept many of them in the faith was the true and the beautiful Jesus, which is to say Jesus Christ and him crucified. The beautiful God who would die on a cross for us. This, uh, the God who looked like a fox or the God who looked like a dog was overcome by the crucified God, Jesus Christ. So John Barry says this about the cross. He says, 
The cross is the definitive event in the revelation of God occurring within history and yet with a significance that is eternal. The only, get this, the only perspective with which one can speak of the word of God is that of the cross. And so when we speak about Jesus, we can't just mean like Jesus can mean anything we want Jesus to mean. That's a really dangerous thing. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of him crucified. And really that's, that's, that's the Jesus that we have to present to the world. And so while I'm ashamed of a God that looks like a dog or a fox, and I'm right to be ashamed of that, and so are you, um, when I look at the cross, I say with the apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, there's this time in recent history um, where the indigenous people, actually, uh, the Pope came to town and they took the occasion to take the Bible and they gave it back to him. It's kind of this dramatic uh, um, gesture. But they said this, we decided to take advantage of John Paul II's visit to return the Bible to him. Because in five centuries, it has given us neither love nor peace nor justice. Please take your Bible and give it back to our oppressors because they need its moral precepts more than we. Since the arrival of Christopher Columbus, the Bible was imposed upon America with force, European language, uh, culture, language, religion, and values. Uh, on and on they, they go about how this was an attack of, of the soul. So the Bible had been used in dreadful ways as a tool of colonialism. And this should cause us to weep. But we should also, I believe, heed the words that they spoke when they returned to the Bible, uh, returned the Bible, because they said this, please take your Bible and give it back to our oppressors because they need its moral precepts more than we. Take it back. Why? Because you need it. <laughs> and this is absolutely shocking. The indigenous community read the Bible better than the oppressors who gave it to them. And the African-American community understood the cross better than the people who presented it to them. And so as we stand at this kind of crucial historical moment, and I know some of this is like, well, this is kind of dark, man. First night of convergence, really? Um, the thing is, I, I just don't believe for a second that we should abandon Jesus. And my prayer is that not one of you will abandon Jesus. I believe that we need to recover Jesus. I'll say that again. I don't believe we need to abandon Jesus. I believe it's time for the church to recover Jesus. I, I think that we've been journeying on our own and we somehow left Jesus back there and we've been journeying without him, maybe not even knowing it. And so it, it's time for us who have maybe created some monstrous images because we had to keep using God's name um, to begin to renounce these things. And look, we can't ignore them and we shouldn't ignore them. But the truth is for that is not what Jesus is like. And this is why we want to spend the whole year talking about Jesus, about Jesus' life, about Jesus' teaching, because the church needs to recover the Jesus that the Bible speaks about the one who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. We need to learn to love 
this Jesus with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we need to learn to follow him in his way of life and to present the beautiful Jesus back to the world. And so in, in 2 Kings 22, we read about a time, and we read this text earlier, um, when the temple of God was in ruins. And so as they set out to rebuild the temple, they discovered the book of the law that had been sitting in the temple, but had been neglected. Nobody had been reading it, and so therefore nobody had been obeying it. And when the king found this out, um, he had it read to him. And as, as it was read to him, he began to weep and weep, and he began to tear his clothes. Now for Luke, the thing that was left in the temple was not the book of the law. He says, you know what got left back in the temple courts was Jesus himself. Mary and Joseph traveled on without him. And and I believe that maybe many of us have too. And so we need to travel back and we need to rediscover Jesus with fresh eyes and and with open hearts. And that's what we're going to do this this year. I'm able, come on up, man. So, you know, in Mark chapter three, this was read earlier as well. We find Jesus in the synagogue. Everyone's watching him to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath. And you notice that Jesus is actually angry with people here. (laughs) That he's angry with the religious people. Like, are you for real? You want to see if I'm going to obey your kind of man-made laws or if I'm going to heal this guy? And, and it says that he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And I think maybe many of us have sometimes felt this way. But in the middle of the distress, Jesus healed that which was withered. And Friends, my belief is that Jesus is so powerful and so wonderful and so full of grace and so full of compassion that Jesus can even heal the the withered hand of religion. And so tonight, may we renounce our ugly pictures of God and look instead into the face of love, which is to say, into the face of Jesus. May we repent of ugly religion and oppressive religion. And may we take up our cross and follow the beautiful Jesus in his way in this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is our first message of the year. This year we're doing a follow-up event called Convergent Conversations where we dig deeper into the content of the message and its related themes. It's a space for you to ask questions and give your thoughts. So our next episode is from our very first Convergent Conversations where I talked with Bob Osborne about the scandal of particularity. For more info on how to get involved in the convergence and other things that are going on in our universities in Calgary, check us out at ucmcalgary.org, UCM as in University Campus Ministries, calgary.org. You should also subscribe to The Convergence on Instagram. Our handle is the underscore convergence underscore YYC. We'll keep you up to date on what is happening there. Until next time, grace and peace.